Today's episode comes to you in partnership with Rotacloud, the people management platform for shift-based teams. Rotacloud lets managers create and share rotas, record attendance and manage annual leave, all from a single web-based app. It also makes work simple for your team, allowing them to check their rotas, request holiday and even pick up extra shifts straight from their phones. Try Rotacloud's time-saving tools today by heading to rotacloud.com forward slash fill. Welcome to Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street, where each week we take a light-hearted look into the stories and individuals that make up the wonderful world of hospitality. Today's guest is Natalie Stanton, former environmental health officer and founder of The Safety Expert. Coming up on today's show... Natalie tells us that she might like food. I've always loved anything to do with food, mainly eating food. Phil recounts a gruesome story. And that makes me feel a little bit sick even just thinking about this. And Natalie highlights one of the drawbacks of her job. But once you've seen something like that, you can't unsee it. All that and so much more as we chat through Natalie's story so far as she and I both recount some interesting experiences on the food safety side of the industry. Today's chat for me has been a wonderful insight into a side of the industry that quite frankly I had not even considered before. But of course it's all interlinked and an incredibly important part of the industry. What Natalie is doing is awesome and a massive thank you to her for reaching out in the first place and making the chat happen. One final thing before we get into it, but if you can take two secs to subscribe to the show and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts, it really makes a huge difference. Enjoy. And a massive hospitality meets welcome to Natalie Stanton. Hi Phil, how are you doing? I'm all right, how are you? Yeah, really good, thank you. Good, good, good. Where do we find you today? That's a, a very interesting room background you've got. Yeah, so I'm, I'm actually in my home office. You can't see behind me, actually part of it's the bedroom. But when I, when I set up the, the business, because um, quite a lot of the stuff I'm doing is video-based, so film, filming content for social media, I thought I'd get one of the walls painted in my brand's colours. So the wall behind is blue. Um, and the rest of the room is actually a completely different colour. We've got some butterflies on the wallpaper and stuff behind. So, um, yeah, but the things that, that you do when you're starting a business. Yeah, well, absolutely. But I, I think equally, everybody who has a home office, whatever that looks like now, whether it's an outbuilding or the third bedroom or whatever it looks like, is, is that whatever you need, the video space is beautiful and clean. But generally around it, and I talk about myself here, it's a disaster over here. But that never sees a light of day on camera. That's the thing that no one else, no one else sees that that part, do they? So it doesn't doesn't matter too much. Indeed, and one is the new normal now, isn't it? Everybody's kind of working from home and doing visual meetings, uh, virtual meetings instead of, uh, in, well, not instead of, but in addition to. Yeah, I think that's one of the one of the positives that definitely came out of COVID, and um, sort of the way it sort of brought the home working sort of things forward. So I was working for local authority at the time, and. There'd been a lot of discussion about sort of home working, but nothing had really come of it. Yeah. Um, but it was actually quite lucky at the time because they'd started to get rid of all of the fixed, this is pure coincidence, but get rid of all of the fixed computers in the office and give everyone laptops. Or they were almost like tablets with keyboards that clipped onto them. Right. And everyone was kind of moaning about it at the time. And then literally, I think two months later, after everyone had been issued with these new devices, COVID hit. So we were we were literally ready to work from home. God. It, I think it would have been a Timing. disaster if if that hadn't already been in place. So it worked out quite well in that respect. Yeah, geez. God, it's almost like they knew. But anyway, I'm not going to... You never know. Yeah. <laughs> 
Great stuff. Well, uh, tell the world uh, who you are and what you do. Yeah, sure. So um, my name is Natalie Stanton. I'm a Chartered Environmental Health Officer. So for the past 11 years, I've worked for um, various local authorities, so some district councils, a couple of London boroughs. As an Environmental Health Officer, so working in the food safety and the health and safety um, teams, Um, So I would kind of be that person going out, doing the food hygiene inspections, so turning up most of the time unannounced to a food business saying, I'm here to do your food hygiene inspection, and then at the end of that process issuing the food hygiene rating. So that was the role, as you can imagine, is is very varied, but that was sort of, I suppose, the key, the key element and I suppose the key thing that I suppose EHOs um, from a local authority are known for. Yeah. So I kind of took a leap of faith last year and after 11 years working for local authorities, decided to completely go out on my own and form my own business. I had run like a very small consultancy business on the side for about eight years where I had a very small number of clients um, that I gave food safety advice to and did in-house training for them. And if anyone is wondering, this is allowed providing you don't have clients in the local authority area and where you're working. So I always made sure there was never that conflict of interest. And yeah, I just, I think this happened to a lot of people, but COVID kind of gave me that time to reflect on what am I actually doing with my life and long-term, where do I see myself going? Mm. And whilst I loved working for local authorities, did I want to be there till I retired doing the same doing the same thing day in day out? I kind of thought, no, maybe I don't. So yeah, I thought take take the leap, launched my own business and decided to do it um, full time. So the business now, I still do some consultancy, but what I'm really trying to focus on is my sort of my online um, presence, should we say? Yeah. So I created a video based level two food hygiene course. And the plan is um, to essentially grow sort of that, I suppose, that e-learning side of the business and create create more video-based courses for for food businesses. So that's kind of where I'm up to today. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, the uh, there's a couple of things that I'd like to to cover. There's many things that I'd like to cover. But um, one, you actually reached out to me and to come on the show. And it, up until then, it was not something that I'd ever considered. But then. I suppose under discussion with myself, realized that, you know, you guys play such a, a vital role in hospitality in terms of ensuring that, that businesses remain compliant and safe for for people to come into. And whether that people is guests who are paying bills or team members or whatever, it's all massively important. You can't have a credible hospitality business without being compliant with environmental health. Yeah, no, you're completely right. And and to be honest, as, as you say, it's very, well, you can't have a credible food business without being compliant with food safety laws. I think, you know, so many consumers these days, they are looking at food hygiene ratings. There's so much competition out there in terms of food businesses that I suppose consumers, have, they've got to use something as a sort of decision-making tool in deciding where to go. And I think, yeah, food hygiene ratings play a really big part in that. A lot of the time people are looking at the businesses that have the the five star rating. And even if people aren't looking, the the press 
often are very interested. So um, sort of in my experience, um, it seems to be maybe the weeks where the press is struggling to find some other news stories. Our slow go on news the... week, I think it's called, isn't it? Slow news week, yes, exactly. Um, so it's sort of, I think those situations where they go onto the food hygiene rating scheme website and they search all of the businesses that have received like a zero or one in sort of in the past sort of week or so, and they publish those. And that is another time when you know people, if, even if they're not actively looking, that's when people start seeing, oh goodness, that this business has scored a zero, this one's got a one. And it, you know, it can be really, really damaging for the business. Yeah, I well, that's uh, the press right there, isn't it? They, uh, they, they won't report on the people who are doing five stars, but they'll report on the, uh, the people who are doing things badly. Exactly. I think, as you say, it, it, it gets people talking, doesn't it? Yeah, and the, the other, um, well, one of the things when I kind of had this discussion with myself, I don't talk to myself that often, by the way, in case anybody's <laughs> worried, but the there must be some stories, and I'm sure we'll get into that at some point. And the only reason I say that is because one of my jobs in my early career was uh, deputy food and beverage manager on board a cruise ship. And oh, that wow. was the, the role that was responsible for health and safety within the food and beverage departments. And we used to take guidance from our own internal EHO, not on ships, but it was head office based. And one of the things that we used to have to do was to go and inspect uh, the premises that we were sending our guests to for lunch if they were on a tour somewhere and things like that. So I have some stories from that, let me tell you. So I can only imagine what you must have stories from a much longer career in that that world. But we'll get into all of that in, in good time. Yeah, I was just really, really, when you suggested it, I, it's, it, to me, it's just, it makes total sense because I think it is, it's important that people out there are aware that this exists as, a, as an actual career in hospitality. So what I want to understand, and I want to take you all the way back now to the beginning of your career, is how did you get into that in the first place? Yeah, really good question. A lot of people have asked me this, and so literally I've, always known that I wanted to do this really um, right. since I was a child at the time I didn't know that the, the job role was called environmental health officer but um when I was a child I saw those programs on tv like life of grime do you, do you remember Mr Trebus yes life of grime um who was sort of living in a house that was filthy and verminous you could barely get in through the front door and, I rem- and there was other similar programs like um, equivalent to food inspectors. I used to love watching these programs. I was so fascinated by them and just watching, say, in the case of um, Mr. Trebus, how the officer actually sort of worked with him, the approach they took, that sort of that transformation, I suppose, of really that I suppose, helping, helping people. That was kind of the, I suppose, what I noticed. So... Yeah, I was inspired ever since then. I kind of knew I want to do that job. And I was fascinated by the TV programs when they'd be going around sort of the filthy kitchens and stuff like that. So what happened next? I, I knew I always wanted to do that. I didn't know how to get into it. So I kind of thought at the time, and this was when the internet wasn't that advanced. So you couldn't just Google, how do I do this job? And it bring and it brings up the answers. Mm. Um, Chat GBT definitely didn't exist. Um, so I thought if I do a food related degree, then I could probably get into it. 
So I um, did a degree in food and consumer management because I've always loved anything to do with food, mainly eating food. I do like cooking as well, as long as I get to eat it after. So, so yeah, I went off to, um, it's now called University College Birmingham, did a degree in food and consumer management there. And it was when I was on that degree that I obviously expressed that I'd like to become an environmental health officer. And they said to me, okay, well, you'll need to do either a, a BSc in environmental health or an MSc in environmental health. And I was at university uh, in Birmingham anyway. So they said, um, Birmingham University, just around the corner, they do the MSc in environmental health. So you could maybe do that after your degree. So I thought, yeah, I'll do this degree because it, it seems interesting anyway. And it will give me sort of a good basis in terms of all things to do with food um, and the management side of things. And then I went on um, afterwards to University of Birmingham to do the MSc in environmental health. And then, yeah, kind of just continued from there. Part of the process um, of qualifying, you have to complete like quite a big logbook and some professional exams. And you essentially need like a, you need a placement to, to do that. So I got a placement with a local authority um, for one year, completed all of the logbook, professional exams. You have like a professional interview as well, where you kind of get given different scenarios and then, I suppose, interrogated on how you would approach each of them. So there's a, a few hoops to, to jump through. But um, yeah, does, does, but like I've kind of wandered off topic. Does that answer the question? Yeah, totally. No, I, I was actually, I, I did put down on, as questions to ask in terms of how do you, how does someone actually get qualified uh, in this and what is the, what's the route? I assume like most things, there's more than one route, but, um, but to get your take on, on the route is, is very, very useful. There, there, there are a few different routes now. It has changed slightly because I qualified back in 2000 and, 2010, 2011. And this is a question a lot of people ask me. So when, I'm, when I'd be out and about doing inspections, sometimes um, and chefs, et cetera, would say to me, oh, we'd, we really would love to do your role. Um, how do you get into it? And EHOs love um, talking to other people about actually how to become an EHO. So yeah, there are different routes now. For anyone thinking about this sort of career, probably the best place to go is the Chartered Institute of Environmental Health website. And it will... Um, set out kind of the best routes um to take now because it has changed a little bit since when I when I qualified. Yeah, okay. So you you got qualified and then landed a job uh, at your local authority. Is that how it works basically from your perspective? Yeah. Uh so yes, yeah, so you complete I suppose the academic side of the training, whether it's the BSc, the MSc. I think now you maybe don't have to do a degree, but but don't don't quote me on that. And so after that, ideally you want to get a placement to complete this, this logbook. Traditionally, you used to get the placement with a local authority. Doesn't guarantee you a job at the end, but you'd get paid, at, say, normally a very, very small salary um, for doing that placement year. But again, things have changed now. So I think you can actually just go into industry and get quite a lot of the experience that you need um, to complete the logbook. Because these days, a lot of environmental health officers are working in private sector. So you don't have to be in a local authority now to do that. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, as, as discussed, P&O had their own internal right. EHO uh, who was there as, you know, an, in an advisory capacity when we had any questions. Because we, we weren't trained. Uh, we were trained to a certain extent. I, I uh, got myself qualified to advanced food hygiene level. That was pretty much it. And I, 
that's actually one of the stories I've got. Actually, when I um, there's a, a massive sense of irony around this when we were doing uh, advanced food hygiene, which was a, a an external course that P&O used to pay for us to go on. We yeah. went through to Bristol, I think it was, to get that done, and they put us up in a hotel. And part of the uh, advanced food hygiene coursework at that time was is that we had to go out and actually do an inspection uh, under guidance with the, our course leader, uh, etc. And we were actually doing the inspection on the hotel we were staying in. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, the hotel was lovely, very, very nice. But I, <laughs> I remember going into the kitchen and they'd... Um, They'd stored raw lamb uncovered uh, on top of fruit salad, um, which oh, was also... No. Yeah, that's a big no. Yeah, and I, look, not fully trained at that time, but even I was like, that can't be right, surely. And so I remember then seeing that, uh, I remember seeing fruit salad the next morning on the uh, the breakfast menu and think, oh, maybe just avoid that. Avoid that one, yep. <laughs> Yeah, and that was just from the, uh, the the training course. I can only imagine what you must have experienced. Um, and I suppose this is, I think, uh, depending on if you've watched programs on this kind of thing, I'd imagine it's one of those environments whereby you kind of, you don't really know what you're going into until you get there, both in terms of what you might find, but also the human being that you've got to deal with um, and whether they are welcoming or quite hostile or whatever that might might look like. So I'd imagine that, that having the people skills has got to be play a massive part in, in the role that you do. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, people skills is um, very important. I think, yeah, a lot of it comes down to um, your approach on the inspection. I think most people are pretty reasonable if you deal with them in the right way. So I think your approach from the moment you walk into that business, you need to get your approach right. If you go in with the wrong attitude or I suppose this sense of, of power, you know, I'm here regardless, I'm, you know, et cetera, you're going to get people's backs up. And the way I would always look at it is from my perspective, yes, the business needs to comply with the law. There's certain things that you may need to get them to do. But actually, if you can get them on your side, and almost help them to understand why they need to do it and almost get them to volunteer and want to do it, then sometimes you don't even actually need to directly ask. And I think also just explaining sometimes the reasoning behind why things need to be done a certain way. So yeah, in my experience, most people were generally fine um, if you dealt with them in the right way. There's always going to be the odd person who either is particularly unreasonable, or maybe just you catch someone on a bad day, but then you've just got to know, I suppose, how to manage that situation and try and diffuse it as much as possible. Because realistically, once you've gone there to do an inspection, you can't normally walk away. You'd only walk away if there was sort of a risk of, in terms of health and safety of the officer, then you have to step away. That would be the local authorities' sort of policy under the risk assessment. But otherwise, once you're there, you need you've got to you've got to look around because if someone I suppose is being a bit cagey, then are they trying to hide something? So yeah. you kind of need to continue that inspection to make sure that you're seeing exactly what's going on and that there isn't a risk to the public. You mentioned about the cross contamination issues. So um, when you when you was doing an inspection. 
And that's quite an interesting point. And in terms of the food hygiene rating scheme, if there's cross-contamination issues, so as you suggested, raw food being stored incorrectly, so too close to cooked or ready-to-eat foods. And for anyone that doesn't know, this is an issue because there's there's a serious uh, risk of food poisoning because the, the ready-to-eat food or the food that's cooked isn't going to be cooked again. It's just going to be eaten. Any bacteria that get onto that food, it's not they're not going to be killed. So for that reason, this is something that an EHO is going to be looking out for during a food hygiene inspection and the way foods are stored and is cross-contamination prevented. And it only takes one member of staff to put one thing in the wrong place in the fridge during the inspection. And that can have a massive effect on the food hygiene rating. So the way the scoring system works for the food hygiene rating scheme, if there's cross-contamination issues, instantly the business can't get more than a two out of five. That can have a massive effect um, on the food hygiene rating. And for me as an EHO, um, when I would be out doing inspections, obviously I wanted the business to do well. You don't go in to do an inspection wanting to find, well, I, I definitely didn't. I didn't want to find as many things wrong as I possibly could. You want things to be good and you want to work with the business to make sure they are. But once you've seen something like that, you can't unsee it. So you have, you have no choice. You have to score based on what you see um, at the time of the inspection. And sometimes it can be quite challenging explaining that to the business owner when it's impacted on their rating. And my approach would always be, we can't change the score now because we have a duty to score what we see at the time. But actually, let's talk through how you can improve things going forwards, how you can get a better rating um, next time or if you want to request a re-rating. What things can you do to make sure that this doesn't happen again? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I suppose that's it almost is under consultation as opposed to we're telling you that you're bad. You know, it, it's this is not great, but we're going to give you some suggestions as to how you can make it better. And then do you give people a kind of timeline to fix or is it a case of we'll, we'll be back next week or whatever to, to check out that you're doing these things? Yeah, good question. So um, it varies dependent on what the issues are. So if it's very serious issues, so let's say there was an imminent risk um, to the health of the public, say uh, a widespread mouse infestation. In that situation, the business would, would be closed until things were sorted. They wouldn't even be allowed to continue trading if there's an imminent risk to the health of the public. Uh, In that particular situation, the officer would still be doing regular uh, revisits to the business, working with them to get them back to a standard where they can open safely. If it's a situation where um, the business is still able to operate, but there's some things that need improvements, um, the frequency and and how soon the revisit is, is going to depend on what the issues were and how many of them there were. So I'm, tr- I'm trying to think of an example. Let's say there was just some I know, cracked floor tiles where the floor couldn't be cleaned that easily and they needed to be changed. You might give, say, four weeks for that because it, it needs to be done, but it's not really serious. Uh, and then you'd go back in four weeks. If it was something else, like I mentioned, the cross-contamination and maybe there were quite, a, maybe it was a common issue within that business, 
you'd probably want to go back a bit sooner to check that they've they've made those improvements and, and, that, and that they're heading um, in the right direction. Just to be clear, though, the food hygiene rating wouldn't change. So the inspection happens, the revisit takes place to check that things have been actioned. But if the business wants a re-rating, every council has a set process that the business would need to go through to request that re-rating. And some councils, I think most councils nowadays do charge for the re-rating. Right, got you. Yeah, well, demonstrates that you should get it right from the outset then. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but a quick word to give special mention to our sponsor, Rotacloud, without whom this podcast wouldn't even be possible. With thousands of customers worldwide, Rotacloud is already saving businesses like yours hundreds of hours of staffing-related admin every year. It's been described by its users as everything from a lifesaver to an absolute no-brainer, with one customer even saying that they'd rather stick forks in their eyes than go back to doing their rotas the old-fashioned way. If you're ready to take the pain out of people management, I highly recommend heading over to rotacloud.com forward slash fill to sign up for your free 30-day trial and see how Rotacloud can benefit your business. Now let's get back to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so how long were you with the council? Was it 11 years, did you say? 11 years, not with the same council. I've worked for about five, five different councils over that time period. Um, some district councils and some London boroughs. And as you can imagine, completely, completely, it's completely different working for a London borough to sort of a more rural um, district council. Yeah, is that just basically because of the sheer quantity of outlets that a London borough is going to have? Yeah, sheer, sheer quantity. Also, uh, yeah, a lot, a lot busier. Often with London boroughs, there's more um, closures of food businesses. There's more enforcement action. You're in court a lot more. And with the with the um, sort of rural councils, you probably get less inspections done in a day because you you have to. It could be like an hour drive to get to an inspection because the place is in the middle of nowhere. Quite right. nice. You spend a bit of time driving through the countryside, and then you have different premises. So you may have more factories. Some quite interesting ones, like you know, people keep, keep keeping chickens, selling eggs, that kind of thing, which you may not probably wouldn't get in a London borough. Right. But yeah, definitely, definitely more um, food manufacturers outside of um, some of the London boroughs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the uh, environmental health has to be strong all the way through the chain, doesn't it? Really, it's not just about what the um the the end user is or the end consumer is consuming it's about how it gets there as well yeah exactly okay so come on then stories have you got any stories, stories you can share with us from you because that to me it just feels like it's got to be a hotbed of terrible activity and um people just you know really stretching the boundaries of what is uh, legally allowed to be done yeah, okay. So I'm trying I'm trying to think of um story in relation um to food safety because I've worked in a couple of other areas as well, sort of the out of hours noise service at council things like that. Thinking of one specifically for food safety. So and one that yeah, one that I can actually tell as well that's not that's not going to be um yes. sort of confidential or sort of identify the business. So I think probably uh the best one is um so this was probably about a week before the Christmas party. For, so I was working for a local authority, the department, the, I suppose the Environmental Health and Trade and Standards Department 
had booked a sort of Christmas mill. And on my inspection list, the premises that they had booked to go to actually came up on my inspection list as needing an inspection. Because um, the way it normally works in local authorities, you get given a list of inspect, each officer will get allocated a list of inspections that are due normally for that quarter. And then you plan your time and your diary around getting those done as close as uh, possible as to when they're actually due. So um, this particular premises where everyone was going for the Christmas party um, appears on my inspection list. So I went off to inspect it. To be honest, I didn't expect there to be any issues. I feel a, a big butt coming here. But, yes, there's a, there's a big butt. Um, during the inspection, I discovered there was quite a serious mouse infestation. Okay. Uh, we're not just talking a few mouse droppings, you know, in the floor edges, in the corner that, that could be old and may have just been missed as part of the cleaning. There are mouse droppings on shelving, food preparation surfaces and Oof. equipment. Uh, I had a mouse on the sauce, just stirring the pot. Not, not yeah. quite, fortunately, <laughs> but um, it, it was quite bad. So I was, I was quite newly qualified at this time. And the way um, it works is, if, I think you need to have been qualified two years before you're allowed to close a food premises. So um, there's a phone call to my manager back in the office explaining the situation and where I was. And then it tw then he twigged, that's where the Christmas party is yeah. in about a week's time. So he came down and he, he, he agreed with the findings and um, there was an imminent risk um, to, health, to the health of the public. So you, you have to close the business until that risk is removed. So um, that's what happened. I then spent the next sort of couple of days or so working very closely with that business. So they got pest control out. They had a deep clean. They filled in any holes, any entry points where the mice could be coming in. And... Fortunately, I'm pleased to say uh, they, they kind of pulled out all the stops, to, you know, to do what they needed to do so they could reopen. They did manage to reopen in time for the, the Christmas meal. I wasn't sure whether colleagues would still want to go, but um, everyone seemed pretty keen. I didn't, just to be clear, I didn't go. <laughs> I didn't think okay. it was necessarily appropriate either. I, I didn't fancy it. Um, but yeah, everyone, everyone else um, seemed happy to go. So yeah, they... They, they all went. I think they had a good time. I suppose it, yeah, it was a ha happy ending in the end. And hopefully um, the business did also, whilst I suppose they had to learn the hard way, I think hopefully, yeah, they, they learned their lesson long term as well. Yeah, I'm guessing that's the thing, though. A lot of businesses just sometimes need a nudge in the right direction. They're, they might not be doing... I mean, that's, that's, I think you know when you've got mouse droppings on your shelf that there's a mouse problem. They're quite obvious because they're, um, that's one thing I remember about learning about pests on the advanced food hygiene. In fact, it might have been even the uh, intermediate. I can't remember. But, and uh, yes, they're uh, interesting little creatures, are mice. Yes. I mean, literally, they can, they can fit through the tiniest of holes. If a biro peg can fit through a hole, then a mouse can get through it. So, um, in a food business it's, it's literally a case of checking around even for the smallest hole if you can fit a pen through it a mouse is going to get through so you need to you need to fill it in uh, you need to fill in the hole because we want to you want to stop the mice from from being able to get in absolutely um do you want to 
story from my worldwide travels of food hygiene. Yes, or, definitely. Please go for it. Yeah. So Hong Kong. <laughs> we were doing an overnight in Hong Kong and myself and my best mate, who happened to also be my boss, he was the uh, F&B manager and I was the deputy. And we had actually that, that EHO guy on the ship with us to come and give us some uh, help uh, because of the extra strain on the department across a world cruise. And uh, we went off to inspect a restaurant, which I'll not name, but it was a restaurant that we were sending our guests to for an evening meal. We were overnighting in Hong Kong. And um, we went in at the front, looked amazing. It's all great, all that sort of thing. When we asked to go in to the back, there was a little bit of apprehension, but we um, but we were allowed in the back. And then we went out the, the back side and off the side of the quay, was their storage facility. I'm doing inverted commas um, as I say that, <laughs> uh, which was a, a an open air barge with uh, on one side, and that makes me feel a little bit sick even just thinking about this, was again, we had a, a plates of uncovered raw meat, various different types of meat. And then in the other side, you had live chickens. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, and, um, and they were literally probably only about two feet away from each other and we were um well I think horrified was actually the the word that we were using I, I remember I was quite a young guy then and I still had an awful lot to learn when it came to food hygiene I remember speaking to the EHO at the time about the fact there's this theory around are we now too safe because you know actually by being too safe you you uh, don't allow the body's own natural reaction to to uh, develop what it needs to develop to protect itself from whatever comes in. And yeah. he looked at me and he went, not a chance, Phil. If you'd have seen some of the things that I've seen, we cannot be too safe when it comes to food safety. Would you agree yeah. with that? <laughs> I, I would definitely agree. And my husband says this to me all the time, you know, you're, you're, you're being over the top. You need some germs, some bacteria, because you can imagine uh, what my house is like. Uh, I almost feel a bit sorry for my husband having to to put up with me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I would agree with the with the EHO um, with your EHO friend that you mentioned or EHO colleague that you mentioned. I don't think you can be too safe. And I think for anyone running a business, like I kind of I never really got it when I was working for local authorities. But now I'm sort of running the business myself. How much you put into that business? Like how much of your life goes into building the business? building that reputation, building your brand, you know, do you want to do anything that, that's going to potentially jeopardize that? Um, you know, in terms of food safety, it only takes one thing to go wrong on one occasion. That can completely destroy a business's reputation. Yeah. And I say to some of my, my clients, some of my bigger clients that where they have, um, you know, they're serving a huge number of covers each day whilst it may sound like a small thing or a small risk, the more people you're serving each day in a busy business, that risk goes up. The chance of something happening dramatically increases. Mm. So I suppose, yeah, whilst there may be some sort of food safety risk we're prepared to take at home on a small scale, I wouldn't be prepared to take that risk in a food business and, you know, when you're serving other people. No, no, I get that. And, what you know, why would you? As, as discussed, it is almost... It's a marketing tool, really, in the end, if you're promoting your excellent food safety within your business and, okay, you might not get press coverage, but if people are looking to find places that are 
you know, I've got the pinnacle of cleanliness and uh, health and safety, then, you know, it, it's, it kind of pays for itself, doesn't it, really? You're not, you're taking that, I suppose you're taking that question mark out of people's brains by ensuring that you're being as, as stringent as possible. Yeah, 100%. And again, when I was working for local authorities, I didn't necessarily realise like how much a good food hygiene rating would actually mean to a business. Like, obviously, I always got it's important. But um, it's like recently, um, I'm, a lot, I'm on Instagram a lot more now, um, obviously, for my business. And I'm following a lot of food businesses. And I'm seeing things um, coming up either the other food businesses are posting or on the, their stories where they've got their rating of five and they're so proud of it. Yeah. They're straight onto Instagram with a picture or, you know, onto their stories. There, there was there was one um, company which I love. I love following their journey. It's fascinating. And they were all literally, they were jumping up and down um, after their inspection, um, you know, with their sticker video of them putting it into the window. And it's amazing, like businesses, they are really proud when they get that five-star rating, um, and it's fantastic. Absolutely. I um, I couldn't get through this podcast, and please like, forgive me, I'm indulging myself here. Uh, my favourite bacteria is Staphylococcus aureus, if I can't yeah. even remember if I've pronounced that correctly now. But um, pronounced correctly. Yeah. Uh, I remember hearing that and it's one of those things that that was always the easy one for me to remember because it's got such a cool name it's just sounds just a, like a bit like a dinosaur yeah indeed but uh anyway that was it that was all I was, do you have a favorite bacteria <laughs> do I have a do you know no one has ever asked me that question <laughs> I don't know if I have a favorite bacteria there's the bacteria that I probably talk about the most because I suppose it's a little bit higher risk or it's associated with foods that are a bit higher risk. So this bacteria is called Bacillus cirrus. Um, some people may have heard of it. It's associated with mainly with cooked rice dishes. So uh, cooked rice is pretty high risk. Uh, the main reason is because of this bacteria, Bacillus cirrus. Um, Bacillus cirrus has, I suppose, a unique characteristic. A couple of a couple of bacteria have this characteristic, but not all of them. You may have learned about this on your um, advanced food hygiene course as well. So Bacillus cirrus is able to form um, spores, which is essentially a protective coating that the bacteria can form around itself to enable it to survive adverse conditions. So adverse conditions, um, generally speaking, cooking, but also um, disinfection and, and sort of um, disinfection chemicals as well. The reason that's a particular concern is because if, if you leave the cooked rice at room temperature for too long, the bacteria is going to multiply. They're going to have enough time to form these spores. So if you then go and reheat that rice, you're not going to be able to kill the bacteria because the spores are protecting the bacteria from that cooking or that reheating process. So yeah, the the only way really to stop the spores from forming is to cool, the, the in this case, the rice, cool it as quickly as possible. Ideally within 90 minutes, get it into the fridge and that's going to be the safest way. So yeah, that's Bacillus cirrus. Not as I said, not necessarily my favourite bacteria, but one I definitely talk about the most. Right, yeah. Well, and there's there's uh, the sound of fridge doors across the land now opening and throwing away cooked rice uh, as we speak uh, about that. What was it the other ones? Clostridium, Clostridium perfringens, Clostridium botulinum. Yeah, Clostridium perfringens. It's still in there. It's still in there. Yeah, so Clostridium perfringens, as you probably remember, is associated with sort of like cooked meat dishes. 
Um, Clostridium botulinum is often associated with um, tinned can products, which is why the, the canning process has to heat the tin to such high temperatures uh, to kill Clostridium botulinum and also the spores, because the two you've just mentioned, they are also spore forming bacteria as well. Yeah, aren't they lovely? Quite technical now. <laughs> lovely. I know. I never thought I'd be speaking about bacteria on this podcast, but uh, but there we go. I always thought that Clostridium botulinum sounded like something that could kill you. It was. It's got that kind of "I'm coming for you" kind of name about it. It's got quite a serious sounding name, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, sorry. I I never in a million years thought I'd be talking about bacteria on a podcast, but. Um, <laughs> But there oh, we I are. love talking about bacteria and food safety, as you've probably gathered. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, you're doing what you you. I think this is one of the great things about your journey so far is that you knew, as you said early on, that this is what you wanted to do, and now you're diversifying yourself, I suppose, into uh, away from local government, as it were, but taking all that experience that you've gained in that time, and now I suppose being able to educate the world either through your your courses that you're uh, doing but I also know that you're you do consulting work uh, as well so tell us a little bit about that what does that involve I'd imagine it involves what you might think it involves which is heading out into businesses and helping them retain compliance yeah yeah exactly that and I think one of the reasons um, I kind of decided to move away from local government was my passion is helping food businesses to succeed but to succeed safely at the same time. And in local authorities, as, as a lot of people probably be aware, they're very short-staffed. Things became, in my experience, very target-driven. So you have a lot less time on the inspections to spend with the businesses to really help them. Right. And that's the side that I really, like, I really believed in. Um, I wanted to be able to do a quality job and but also have that time to help businesses as well, uh, especially for you know some smaller businesses where they either don't have in-house sort of food safety advice or support or and maybe they can't even afford um, a food safety consultant. That's kind of like their one opportunity um, and this is just my opinion. I feel like it's their one opportunity they have roughly every 18 months to to have a professional food safety professional in front of them where they can ask those questions and get that clarification on certain things so yeah I think with the consultancy work and um, that I'm now doing it gives me that time to spend with businesses answering any questions offering advice as you rightly say so a key part of the consultancy role is um doing food safety audits for businesses and that can take, they can take, I suppose, different forms depending on the size of the business and exactly what they need. Also um, helping some businesses with producing the food safety paperwork, so bespoke um, HACCP systems, sometimes some in-house training, although I am trying to move away from that. Uh, and that's the reason I created the um, video-based Level 2 Food Hygiene course. For many years, I used to teach the Level 2 food hygiene course in-house for some clients. As you can imagine, during COVID, that completely stopped. Yeah. And for me, that demand didn't really come back. So um, sort of after COVID, I, I did a lot of thinking really and thought, okay, there's definitely, in my experience, there's definitely benefits to face-to-face -to -face food hygiene training in terms of 
I feel people learn more and they retain they retain more knowledge. And when I would used to work for local authorities and I'd be out and about doing inspections, I would kind of place a bit more weight on the food hygiene certificates where people have been on a face-to-face course. Right. As opposed to um, an online course. So so anyway, I, I kind of did some thinking. I thought, I want to try and combine the benefits that you get from a face-to-face food hygiene course, whereby you see a real person, you're taught by an industry expert, so someone who can share stories to kind of bring that learning to life. Because I think we all remember stories rather than if you just told facts. Yeah. Uh, so I thought, how can I bring that to sort of the... Uh, online side of things so the lower cost and the flexibility that online training courses bring and that's where i came up with with this idea so uh the level two food hygiene course i created is entirely video based i'm delivering to camera most of it is set in like a commercial kitchen um so i share stories and also like practical examples you know this is a fridge this is physically how you check the temperature so yeah, that's kind of um, that's kind of where I'm at with that. I feel like I've uh, digressed from your original question. No, not at all. I, I, that's it's important that I, I guess that you know people are aware that you exist and actually that this service is available to to people if they feel like they need some extra advice in their business around this this sort of stuff, which as we've discussed is hugely important. How would how's what's the best way for people to get hold of you to 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 kind of reach out and talk to you about how you could help them yeah sure so my website is www.thesafetyexpert.co.uk if anyone yeah if anyone has any questions just wants to chat probably the best way is on instagram just just send, follow me on there send or send me a message um, I'm, I'm very good at responding to all of the messages so i will definitely respond to anyone instagram is the underscore safety underscore expert Great, yeah, and you're very active on there. Uh, I've seen uh, a lot of your your videos that you're putting. You know, again, educating people and uh, you know being the best it can be from from a safety perspective. Yeah, from for, oh, definitely on Instagram. From my perspective, it's it's just all about educating people. So just try and put out sort of useful um, videos of food safety tips. I've done sort of a series recently where I um I've got quite a, as you can imagine I've got quite a few EHO friends. So I got one of my HO friends who is currently working for a local authority to come round a food business with me and kind of give his top tips of what he actually looks for during a food hygiene inspection. And yeah, people seem to be sort of finding that really useful. And then it's not just me giving the tips as well. People can actually learn from different EHOs. Love it. Great stuff. Well, look, thank you very much for coming on. And I can't believe how quickly this has gone, to be honest. I, um, I was expecting this to be a really... Uh, well, I don't know what I was expecting, to be honest, but I thought this would be a, a kind of cold, hard, dry topic. But actually, uh, you've you've brought it to life. And I um, really, really thank you for coming on and, and sharing your story and, and giving us an insight into yet another career path that you can go that's associated with hospitality. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real privilege. Uh, yeah, absolutely amazing to be on the show. So thank you so much. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Thanks, Phil. Bye. Bye. And there we have it. Once again, sending huge thanks to Natalie for reaching out and shining a light on this massively important part of the industry. I'd encourage you to reach out to her if you need a nudge in the right direction for all things food safety. We'll be back as usual at 8pm next Wednesday for another story from hospitality. So until then, thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week.